Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and serve as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we dive into the amazing things that are happening at the Department of Defense and have a conversation with Joe Bryan, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer and is the first Senior Advisor of the Secretary of Defense on Climate. Joe's got an amazing track record of creating change and doing really interesting, innovative things, and I think brings that to the department. We talk a lot about the work being done there both in the building, but externally too, allowing DOD to be a leader, both in the markets as well as internationally. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This takes me back to the time that I was at the Pentagon actually with Joe. I'm excited to dive back in and excited to see the work that he's doing, bringing change on the issues that we care about. So I hope you enjoy the show. Joe, thanks for joining me at Experts Only. Hey, thanks, John. Appreciate the opportunity to join you. Yeah, I got to say, this is the first time I've done an interview into the Pentagon, so I'm super excited to see the uh, the background. Well, I think this is our uh, first podcast, actually. If uh, I'm looking at the team here, but I think this is the first time I've done an actual podcast. So, and Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, welcome to Experts Only. I really appreciate uh, the the work you're doing uh, for the Pentagon, but obviously, for always appreciate your friendship. And, you know, I think for folks that aren't aware I want to get into, um, you know, how monumental it is that you're the first senior advisor on climate to the Secretary of Defense. But before getting into that, I want to sort of fall back. You, you know, you grew up in Cleveland. You went to D.C. Um, you've worked with some really extraordinary leaders in in your 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 time in the Hill and and beyond. Um, so, first of all, what got you interested, sort of, on the policy front? Like, how did you end up? going to DC to remember if I read, I didn't even know you were in South Africa at what point, like, what was it about like policy that got you excited and knowing that's the sort of space you wanted to play in? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, before we get into that, John, I think it's, it's pretty important. Uh, you know, we've, we've known each other for a little while. We have some similar backgrounds, both, uh, yeah. both from the North coast of the United States, right, coast, right. of course, coast of Lake Erie. Uh, you from Buffalo and mm. me from the, the better city, uh, the, the senior <laughs> city of Cleveland. Um, and I and you went to school, you went to John Carroll in Cleveland, right? I did, yeah. And, deep and in our, we put our crack research team on your John Carroll career. Just, um, you know, John Carroll, if you go on their website, on the Wikipedia page, they have prominent alumni, John. And who I see on there, I see Tim Russert. Oh, yeah. Don Shula. Uh, Josh McDaniels for those full football fans out there. Yeah. Eric Carmen of Raspberry's fame and oh, Josh Powers. I'm on there. <laughs> You're on as a prominent alumni. So I went to Fordham, another Jesuit school. We have Vince Lombardi and Denzel Washington, but I didn't make the Mount Rushmore of Fordham, but you've managed oh, to do that. So at some point, John, we're all going to have to understand how one achieves Wikipedia. <laughs> Uh, uh, stardom, uh, so that we can, you know, that's something it's we all podcast, Joe. Start a podcast, and then, then they can get you up there. <laughs> right. um, well, it's an interesting question. You know, how did I get into this space? Um, you know, like like we said, I grew up in I grew up in Cleveland, moved to New York to go to college. Um, actually, I, I went to actually to play football. Was my was my primary. Oh, did you? Yeah, I wasn't a good player, but I was I was present. 
uh, most of the time. Um, <laughs> Listen, a good player in Ohio, a decent player in Ohio is like great everywhere else. So, well, say, I, mean, uh, I may be an exception to that rule, John. So right. uh, <laughs> you can look at the tape. Um, That's why I played rugby, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let me see. So, you know, after college, I, uh, and this is actually how I got, not only got into policy, but got into climate and energy, um, mostly energy at the time. I took a job in the mountains of Western Maryland and I lived in a tent for a year oh uh, and the and the job was dealing with um with kids who had an alternative it was an alternative to incarceration for kids juvenile offenders and so folks could the kids could either go into uh could go to jail or they could come to the come and live in the tent with us and and um if you've ever been in the mountains of maryland in the winter and this was uh uh before temperatures started to change too much so this is going back to the early 90s yeah. and um it was quite cold and i remember thinking we operated on, uh, you know, we had to build fires to keep ourselves warm in the morning, and I'd have to go around and light all the fires in the kids' tents, and and um, I just remember thinking to myself, like, there's got to be a better way. Right. And, uh, we got a couple of days off, and there was not much to do in Cumberland, Maryland in 1992, and so I would spend my time at the library reading about uh, solar energy and, uh, and electric vehicles, and I decided oh, wow. at that time that that struck me as really interesting. And this was very early on, uh, obviously in the, in, in kind of the, uh, in the development of all those technologies. So, uh, you know, I decided that's what I was going to do. And I went to, I went to graduate school at the university of Delaware and, um, and, uh, I wasn't a technical person, you know, I'm not an engineer or a scientist, yeah. uh, not smart enough to pass any of those classes. So I, I took uh, public policy degrees and I, I got a, a public policy class and got a master's in energy policy from the University of Delaware, which was a fabulous experience and a great school. Um, and then that's, that was kind of kicked off my career. I, I, I then moved to New York and uh, worked on um, a lot on um, renewable energy stuff early, early days on things like net metering policy, uh, which uh, you were at NRDC, right? After that? I was at NRDC after that in New York, yeah. and we, we did a lot of uh, utility, at the time we were in the middle of a lot of utility restructuring and um, and introduction of competition into the utility space, so we worked a lot on that, um, and my particular interest in that was on how do we bring more renewable energy onto the grid, and what are the tools we have in policy to make renewables competitive and to grow those markets, and so I got, I got very interested in, in that. Um, and we had some success in, in, in New York and in the Northeast on, on some, some policies, which I think were helpful in, in moving the market a bit at the time. Um, uh, then when, as you mentioned, I, I left there and went to South Africa for a couple of years um, and then came back to D.C. and didn't come to D.C. till I was probably 30, 31 years old. Um, and then That's I had nice. an opportunity, obviously, to work with the folks that you mentioned. Yeah, um, I'm going to keep South Africa as for a whole nother podcast. So I'm fascinated by the work you're doing over there. Uh, but before getting in, you know, deeper into the career stuff, you know, you ended up working for John Lewis, right on Capitol Hill, yeah. uh, who, and folks don't know, um, you should definitely look John Lewis up. He's a, a luminary in American politics and, uh, just a phenomenal, um, had been a ph phenomenal human being and leader. How, what was that experience like just being in the room with him? So um, I took that job. I, I had the opportunity to get that job when I, when I first came back from South Africa. And um, just to be around him and the history that he's lived was just, it's something that you don't get a, a chance to do, right? There's not 
there's not many living human beings who have contributed so much to to equality in our country or in the world as as uh, Mr. Yeah. Lewis uh, did. And and when I say contribute, I don't mean contribute. He was arrested 40 times, right? He was beaten. Yeah. Uh, we can all see the video in which he 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 uh, literally stood up in the face of uh, of some really uh, serious challenges and the bravery and courage. And he was a kid at the time, right? Uh, yeah, he was in his early twenties. So uh, it was it was amazing. Um, I, I, there's this I can name him probably on one hand the time I've sat, sat in D.C. in awe of like someone speaking, and I've seen Lewis speak a few times. And every time it's just it's it's you just sort of have to absorb the the monumental uh, person you're in the room with, uh, and in in and, and appreciate like all the stuff they've done. And he was he was one of the person that didn't carry himself with with zero ego. Uh, at least in, from what I ever saw, and it was and it was just always wonderful to see, um, you know, the compassion, and empathy, and sort of leadership he showed. So, yeah, the private John Lewis was just the same as the public John Lewis. And um, I, anyone who's listening, if Walking with the Wind is just a is a great, it's a great book. Um, and it's a great uh, story of his life and um, how one person. Who can stand up in the face of a lot of overwhelming, you know, overwhelming resistance can can really make change and change at a scale that that we're all benefiting from today. Yeah. So it was just an amazing experience and great colleagues and you know that's awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to lead forward. I mean, other experiences on the Hill and, and the Senate side as well, which are awesome. Uh, I mean, when I first got, really got to know you, it was when you were when you came into the Pentagon for the first time, really on the the Navy side. And one of the things I really loved about the way you worked within the the building uh, was both respect for the process and the ability to disrupt the process, right? And, uh, you know, what, for folks that don't know the Pentagon, there is a lot of process and you can either get lost in the minutia of the process, which is, look, you're, you're obviously driving a major uh, organization, the largest energy consumer, but also at the time we first started working there, there was fighting two active wars, uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges to talking about climate, electric vehicles, renewable energy in the face of those those challenges. And you did a great job of driving it. But then also, I remember specifically on electric vehicles, instead of following the traditional path of we can get it done if we follow this minutia, you were able to uh, disrupt that and get uh, some of the traditional bureaucratic players like GSA and others to to move hyper vigilantly because they were afraid of. Uh, the fact that you know you were not going to be married to the the process, so I think that's that's hugely important for me to think about now your role at the Pentagon, right? Where you come in from that experience, you know the building, you know how to operate with and within without the process, but now you're at the highest level. So how's it been now stepping into literally the 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 apex of the Pentagon? And, and finding ways to drive a conversation around an issue like climate, which in many cases may not be the folks in the building's uh, natural thing to discuss. Um, you know, how has that experience been? Yeah, that's, um, so look, coming into the Pentagon this time, John, really different than the last time and for a couple of reasons. One, I think I was just a lot smarter uh, about how this place operates. It is a, as you mentioned, it's the biggest bureaucracy in the world. Um, it's a massive corporation with lots of different business units that operate within it. And so understanding that kind of 
um, that whole kaleidoscope of things that are going on around you um, can be either uh, empowering or distracting. And you have to, you right. have to figure out how to manage through that process. So I, coming back, it was a lot, a lot easier for me to understand what to do. And, and as you know, uh, importantly, what, what not to do and um, understanding bureaucracy is super, super important. Um, so where I came in this time and it's, it's unique in this, um, this administration's take a really different approach to this issue of climate and energy. And uh, what, what the administration did, what the president did is he, is he put a number of senior folks um, in agencies at the highest level to help uh, set, build the groundwork for the kinds of things that he wanted to accomplish on climate and energy. And Secretary Austin, Deputy Secretary Hicks, uh, my bosses, um, kind of put me in their front office. And what that means for folks who are not familiar with the Department of Defense is I, um, I exist not within the bureaucracy, but within the secretary's office. And so I like to say sometimes that uh, not a lot of people work for me, but everybody works for my boss. Right. And when you remove uh, this position and some of these functions from the bureaucracy, you can operate uh, more strategically and set priorities for the department and allow the bureaucracy to actually do its job. So I don't have to, it's not my job to manage everything, uh, the deployment of electric vehicles on a particular installation or the development of a, of a renewable energy power purchase agreement. My job is to help the organization set priorities um, for what we wanna achieve over a period of time and then work with the components and the individual business units, the military services within the department to execute on those. And once we have sort of unity of understanding of where we're going, it makes it easier for the bureaucracy, I think, to get on board and to do what they do well. So um, the structure of this is different, very, uh, very different than, than the first time I was in here. And I think it, it, it creates new opportunities for us. Um, but it's also, as you say, it's operating at a, at a, at a different level. So, you know, flashing back to uh, the, the role we had before, right now, it's almost it's not a decade, but it's not far from a decade from later. Yeah, right? gosh, it was uh, right? Isn't that crazy? Uh, nine years. Yeah, that's nine that's years. Ago, I guess. Wow. Um, if you think about the foundation of work that was laid then, right, of really raising this issue, being able to take this issue beyond the the civilian side into the military side. And I think what is interesting about the military side, having also been in, in uniform at one point, is you have a generation of, of, uh, of sailors, uh, soldiers, Marines, Airmen who have uh, lived and breathed national security and energy security and begin to understand climate, right? So you have a cultural shift there. Here you are a decade later. Like, how do you now communicate, or do you see like a better understanding of within the bureaucracy of the just the issue of climate and national security, where it's no longer like, hey, this is an issue. We should learn about it. And it's like we recognize this is a threat. We need to do something about it. Like, how has that transition been for? for you coming back in the building? There's two things I think. One is, I, look, I think it's really difficult to ignore uh, what's happening around us, right? Um, right. There's a, a quote that I sometimes, I'll, I'll probably butcher it here, but um, there's a woman who was a climate scientist was talking about um, climate change, obviously. Good, good thing. Right, right. Uh, and she says, you know, to understand climate change, you don't need to be a climate scientist. You don't need to be a meteorologist. You just need to be somebody who looks out their window. And I think uh, 
we are, uh, I, I hesitate to say we're benefiting from that by educating people, but you look around you and there's a lot of things happening. And, and I think it's right. hard, increasingly hard to deny that things are happening in the environment around us. So that's one aspect of, of, uh, of, of things that are different now than they were maybe, uh, maybe nine years ago, or at least more obvious now than they were nine years ago. The other thing that we've done quite well, and I think we, we work really hard at it, is to communicate how the what we're doing with respect to climate is aligned with what the Department of Defense needs to do for its primary mission. Right. And so the- Can you add some, some color to that for folks that don't yeah. understand that? So obviously the, the Department of Defense's mission is to, is to be prepared to fight and win the wars uh, uh, and, and to protect you know, the homeland and to, and to intervene if we have to in, in conflict that happens. Um, and that's the primary mission of the Department of Defense. The primary mission of the Department of Defense is not to be uh, to lead the world on, on mitigating climate change. That's just right. that's not our mission. Um, but what we do with respect to climate can actually help us be better at our jobs. And I'll, let me give you a couple examples. Um, what we know is that climate change is um, increasingly causing extreme weather that impacts our installations, that impacts our training, um, you know, we have that impacts our budget. We've had billions and billions of dollars that we've had to spend to rebuild places like Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. We have wildfires that impact our bases on the West Coast. Uh, we have dry conditions, which make it difficult to do live fire training, for example. Uh, when a hurricane comes in, we have to send our ships to sea. So there are a lot of impacts uh, to the mission from climate. And if you look at like a military installation, um, they all rely on the commercial electric grid for power for the most part. Yeah. And what do you do to improve the resilience of a military installation to uh, events which might affect the commercial electric grid, like a hurricane or, or a cyber attack or even a kinetic attack on the grid? Well, what you do is you, you get as efficient as you possibly can to reduce demand on the grid in the first place. And then it's helpful to bring energy storage and distributed generation like solar inside the fence line to support critical missions. So if you do lose the commercial grid, then you can continue to operate things that you can't lose in the event of a contingency. So in that case, you don't even have to, you don't even have to agree that we're doing this for climate reasons. You do it for mission reasons, and there happens to be a climate benefit. And so we can right. elevate those kind of efforts. Now, in the operational forces, the same is true. Look, we um, what we know is that um, our logistics requirement, and John, you can speak to this better than, better than I, our logistics requirements for fuel are massive. Uh, they, massive. they cost us uh, treasure, they cost us lives to have to deliver fuel over long distances in contested space. We've faced that in the past in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we'll face it potentially in the future as we think about uh, as we think about the Pacific. And what's the best way to mitigate the risk of logistics, uh, uh, contested logistics? That's to not require logistics in the first place. So improve the efficiency of your platforms, deploy technologies that minimize the amount of fuel that you have to deliver. And so if we, we've worked very hard to align what we're doing with respect to climate, so we're investing significant money in the hybridization of our tactical vehicles so that uh, we, don't, um, we don't need as much fuel forward and that we, we leverage 
other combat benefits that electrification can bring, like silent watch, like being quiet on the battlefield, like not putting out a heat signature, like being able to go really fast. Um, those things have combat benefit to them, and they're also happen to be affiliated with uh, associated with uh, you know a, a technology that's better for the climate. So what we've tried very hard to do, and I think we're doing reasonably well, is to communicate within the department how that perceived tension between what's good for the climate and what's good for the mission are uh, to, to communicate. That's just a mistaken way to think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think about, um, you know, what the department as a whole, right? And for folks that are not you know, familiar, obviously, the military is one of the, the largest energy consumer uh, in the world. And you've got spaces at home, you've got forward operations. You know, in many cases, the, the, the stuff that's happening in the forward operating level is unique enough that, you know, it's it's hard to really take best practices from other industries, right? And and bring that over. And there's some like hybrid vehicles, things you can learn from technology-wise, but it's, you know, very few people are figuring out how to, you know, really try to uh, blow up an enemy that's 50 miles away. They're trying to figure out how to deliver packages to your house more in a more efficient fashion. Well, um, let me tell you that, John, right there is you just nailed it. Um, delivering package in a more efficient fashion, right? The FedExes yeah. and the UPSs of the world want cargo aircraft that are efficient because fuel costs are a significant part of their bottom Huge. line. For us, we want airframes that can go long distances and deliver fuel, not packages, maybe packages, but fuel, fuel and cargo at range. And yeah. so we both have a common interest actually in things like we've, we've, we're looking at a lot of things like blended wing body, a whole new kind of airframe that could transform the market for, uh, uh, for uh, air travel and for, and for, right. for commerce. So, we well, that, that's, that, that is the question I wanted to ask you, which is like, okay, so for, for, for listeners that are working at some really interesting uh, things in the private sector, right? Uh, whether it be, you know, I think about uh, the firm Guidehouse, which does, as you, you know, I've worked with them a lot in the past, and they do a lot of stuff around greenhouse gas accounting for a lot of really amazing corporations, or someone in Silicon Valley who's creating the newest technology to help bring efficiency to the airline industry or to, um, you know, building efficiency and building management. When they look at the defense department, like how would you coach them to bring those experiences uh, into defense? Because DOD is, you know, you know, when we, you and I worked in there together, it was really the sole leader in a lot of this stuff. Now it is a really important consumer of of of, of energy and, and other uh you know climate technologies and etc is part of a much larger market which i think is great but it means there's some really great off-the-shelf technology that might fit into the rubrics of what you're trying to solve like how would you advise firms that are are innovative to think about how to bring those ideas in the department to help you and your mission yeah, that's a good question. It's frequently, I mean, we I know in, in your in past lives, we've we've talked a lot about that, about how to how to bring technology to the Department of Defense. Um yeah. or ideas, like not just a yeah, technology, will it be you know, micro contracting, EV yeah. infrastructure stuff? Like yeah. there's a lot of like unique we were talking earlier about contracting of power, right? For a long time, like DoD was the biggest contractor of power. Now, you know, Google has their own sophisticated shop doing it, others do. And there's so much that can be shared, right, uh, and help help accelerate the mission that you're on. Um, and you know how how can we help? I guess maybe bring those players together. Yeah. So, uh, talk about a couple of challenges, but then talk a little bit about what what we're doing. Um, yeah. 
One challenge is, you know, the department generally doesn't buy like widgets, right? We don't buy right. individual goods. Like we don't generally buy like batteries or we don't buy solar panels. What we tend to buy, and even when you think about a, our, our, our combat platforms, we buy the platform. We don't buy all the components that go into the platform. Right. So um, if you're an individual company trying to sell in the department your widget, sometimes that can be tough. And we look for integrated solutions to our problems. So even on an installation, if we're if we're trying to improve the efficiency of an installation, frequently, as you know, we'll we'll do energy service performance contracting, and we'll use ESCOs and and our utility partners to bring us, you know, uh, um, integrated solutions to solve some of those problems, which could mean, you know, some efficiency, um, could mean some supply side solutions like batteries and renewables Um, but those come together frequently as a package and we have some great examples of where we've been able to execute on big kind of contracts at our installations that both improve our energy performance but also offer us something in terms of of uh of resilience of our mission so places like paris island or or miramar uh there's a whole set of other uh, examples we could go into about. Joe, that's really helpful because um, it, it helps folks understand like you don't have to go sell to the Pentagon, right? That's right. Can, there's, there's an ecosystem around it of folks that are looking for innovative technologies that they can then wrap into a package and bring it in. That's right. right. So, and I think that's 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 really helpful because I often, you know, having been on the other side, like when I was working at Bloom in Silicon Valley, it's always like, we have to go meet with the secretary or whatever. Like, well, that's really not who you need to be talking to. You need to be that's talking right. to the ecosystem, the folks around right. it and understanding that. That's right. And we have a lot of industry partners who are integrators, right? Uh, that's, right. What they do for, that's what they do for a living. And operationally, one thing I'll mention to you that I think is important. So two thirds of the department's energy use and two thirds of our associated greenhouse gas emissions are, are in our operations. So about a third in our installations, but two thirds of it is in our ships, our airplanes, our tactical vehicles, that's what are the big fuel users. And actually two thirds yeah. of that two thirds is airplanes. So one of the things we- Two thirds of the two thirds of, so basically airplanes are the largest energy consumers and emit- emitters basically in many cases. That's right, that's right. They yeah. burn the most fuel. Um, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we've done um, is the, the deputy, uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks put out a requirement last year that directed the department to pursue energy demand reduction. So uh, in all their new platform acquisitions or in major upgrades to existing platforms. So basically what she was saying is, hey, when we buy something, something new, or when we overhaul something that's old, we need to make energy demand reduction uh, efficiency a priority attribute of that system so that we can, we can mitigate those logistics risks that we just talked about um, but it also has a knock-on benefit of being good for the climate. And so she put that direction out. It's making its way through the system um, and will end up ultimately in requirements that the individual military services and the program offices who buy things for the department, because we don't buy things out of my office, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Buy things. The, the service, the military service, the Army, Navy, Air Force, they buy things. And what they buy, they should have a requirement that, hey, that thing should that we're buying, that should be efficient. Now, that's a demand signal that should come from us. And what I would say to the broader community, though, is there's I'll also- pause you for one second, Joe, and just yeah. translate that. 
folks. So what that what that means, and I think that's super important example, is that if if now you know the fo- folks that are on the front line of per- purchasing, that is a key metric that they're measuring one system off another on, right? And that, what that does is then push the contractors, whether it be the the folks developing planes or tanks or whatever, to want to add that metric in and focus on that as a priority. If it's not a priority, they don't think about it because they need to hit the rest of the scorecard. You guys have added that to the scorecard. That is wildly important because it, it is transformational in how not just the you guys are thinking, but the ecosystem is thinking about energy demand. That's exciting. Yeah. And that's a great way to talk about it in terms of the scorecard. And what I would say though is, is you asked how should people talk to the department? There's a lot of folks out there we have all of our traditional contractors, right? We have all of our defense industrial base, which are super important partners for the Department of Defense. Right. But there's also a lot of people doing cool and interesting stuff that we don't get a chance to see. So the program offices, the folks in the services who are buying those things and who are being measured by those scorecards that you just mentioned, you can have a conversation with them about, hey, we have this thing that we think could improve the thing that you're trying to buy, that could improve that airplane, whether it's a a change to a slight change to the aerodynamics of an existing system, or whether it's a way to think through how you design something new. We have an idea for that. Uh, there should be one, there's a demand signal that sh- our program officers, the folks who buy things should be sending to the market, but there's also should be an open door to companies out there who are doing interesting things and who are innovating on, um, on energy and climate related technologies that they should come and talk to us. Cause you know, it's, it's really hard for folks to your head down here a lot of times in the Pentagon and yeah. in the program offices. And so getting a chance to look up and see what's out there um, happens less frequently than it probably should. Yeah. So I'm going to transition now a little bit to the leadership that, that you and the department have been showing, uh, not just within, uh, you know, our uh, domestically, but, but internationally. And I understand you actually went to COP uh, in, in Egypt and folks that don't know COP is basically the big climate negotiations you often hear about. The Paris negotiations was technically a COP. They happen in a regular thing. The, the most recent was in, in Egypt. It was called COP 27. But you led a Defense Department delegation there, right? And maybe was that the first time DOD has been at the table with that? Yeah, it was It was actually the first time the department has sent an official delegation to, uh, to a COP. And this was COP That's 27. Amazing. So there have been a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. So what was that experience like and what was the reception of the other partners, the other allies and, and that, you know, some um, like the British were doing some interesting stuff on this and, and others, but it seemed like, you know, really going back to the concept of leading by example, like the Pentagon has been doing it. How, how are the partners receiving that? And is, have you seen any sort of ripple effects from those conversations you had then? Um, so first of all, I think it's important that we went in the first place and it reflects this administration's or whole government approach to this issue, yeah. right? Um, this is not something that you can confine to the Department of Energy or the EPA. This is something that climate and energy transition are things that affect the entirety of the United States government and in fact, the entirety of the U.S. economy. And I know you're deeply engaged in some of those discussions. Um, COP was pretty amazing, actually. So um it is a massive, massive event, and I was uh, a little unsure of what to expect when we went, but uh, it was actually a fabulous experience. Um, I think people, we had an, an opportunity to meet with a number of uh, um, uh, partners and allies when we were there, and there was um, there's a lot of curiosity. They were asking, so why is the U.S. Department of Defense here? And we talked a lot about uh, what you and I just talked about, um, and that is that 
we see climate as impacting the mission across the board, our readiness, our ability to do our job. And we see this energy transition that we're in the middle of as providing an opportunity for us to do that job better. And uh, really intrigued uh, 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 partners there, uh, folks asking us first, like, why is the U.S. Department of Defense there? And then the second question they asked was, why isn't our Department of Defense there? Right. <laughs> um, and so I think it, it gave rise to a, a lot of really good discussion. The other thing that we were talking about just before we got on the, on the, uh, in the conversation with you here was that, you know, if you go and talk to countries, um, we can talk to traditional allies and partners like those in Europe and some of the big countries, and we all think through this in ways that are, uh, that are kind of relevant to how we're positioned in the world. But if you go to places like the Pacific and talk to island nations, and you talk national security with them, their primary national security issue is the existence of their country right. uh, in the face of overwhelming challenges associated with climate change. So the perspective you get from meeting with those folks is that, hey, we would love to have a conversation with you, the United States, and we'd love to have a conversation with you, the Department of Defense. Our overriding interest here is making sure we exist in the future. And so we that, it's important for us to hear that, and it's important for us to integrate that into our approach to allies and partners around the world, uh, but particularly in places like the Pacific and Central and Central America and South America, where we're facing, where countries are facing some pretty, uh, some pretty uh, uh, dire conditions. Yeah, I was on the ground in Guam in November, meeting with the governor. We own the largest solar array in Guam. Uh, and you know the the work that because of our defense presence there that FERC DOD is doing in general there on energy efficiency and, and upgrades is so critical for their infrastructure, uh, not just for in existence but also like they're a lot of those islands they basically are are um, energized by shipping in fuel. So as the yeah. the war in, with Russia, uh, the Ukrainian Russian Russian war kicked off and prices took off, their electricity bills skyrocketed, uh, which they they all are wrestling with what to deal with. So yeah. I do want to step out of Pentagon for a second and talk big picture here to, at the end and talk about, as you've mentioned a few times, and I love the, the term of the Biden all of government approach on climate. So this role in particular is the first time ever there's been a special advisor to, on climate at the Secretary of Defense, but that's also in the Treasury Department and the Transportation Department. And, you know, classic departments like EPA and DOE have been working on this for a long time, but now you have at the highest level leadership attention, not just occasionally in a meeting every quarter to talk about this, but you have a chief sustainability officer now at the Pentagon, which is you, uh, and, and versions of that across the agencies that are daily focused on top-down leadership on this. How do you, how has that changed um, the bureaucracy's approach to this? And do you, you know, do you see that all of government um, initiative as, um, you know, what does, what does that look like for the rest of the the administration here. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, there's just a lot of leadership out of the out of the White House. Uh, John, out of your old office, for example, at, at CEQ, um, Andrew Mayock over there. Um, we have a lot of the of the climate policy office in the White House. What's what's clear uh, and consistent is that uh, climate matters across this administration. Yeah. Uh, the climate and energy transition matter for the U.S. economy and for U.S. For US national security. Um, we play a particularly interesting role, right? Because of our scale, we're like, you know, 80% of the federal government's energy use. Right. Uh, uh, so we play a really important role in 
implementing some things as an as an agency of the of the of the federal government uh, on things like our vehicle fleets in terms of, in things like our purchase of electricity and things like fuel efficiency. Um, other parts of the government are uh, Treasury is more involved in you know tax policy and and right. DOE is driving uh, driving development of new technology. Although they have also have uh, are playing an increasingly important role in execution of IRA and and uh, bipartisan infrastructure infrastructure law funding. So we have great partners across the the across the executive branch, both in the White House and in the agencies. And I think. We're working hard right now, in fact, to figure out how do we best work with like DOE as they're looking to execute projects? What role can the Department of Defense play in, in helping the administration achieve its objectives and also help demonstrate the capabilities that come with these uh, with, you know, clean energy technologies? So I, yeah. I, it's unique. It's we used to do some of that. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember back, uh, you know, eight, nine years ago, we we had some really good conversations with um with the interagency, but right now the scale and pace of activity is is uh, unlike anything that I've seen before. Yeah, it's a lot different when it's buried a couple steps down, right? When it's happening yeah. at the highest level, it drives it just drives the change. It drives yeah. the you know folks know they're going to be asked about it by their bosses, which drives. Well, we have a national change, climate so. task force that is cabinet level, right? That right. exists, um, and we have agencies who are talking about. Uh, we need to. We, the United States, needs to compete with these on these technologies and right. define the future. Right? If we don't get ahead of sort of the battery, for example, the battery supply chain uh, challenges that we have, the whole world is changing, and the United States has to assert itself in that competitive environment. And I think there's a pretty keen understanding across the executive branch that uh, it's time for us to move out and compete. Interesting. So, last question I always ask my guests. I'm going to take you back to Cleveland. You're uh, you're graduating, and before you head off to the mountains of Maryland, uh, if you sat down and and could have a beer with yourself and give yourself a piece of career advice, uh, what would it be? Well, first of all, I actually advice I period. Could a, I could have a beer with myself. I think because the drinking age is only yeah. I believe it's, it's Ohio. Time, so. It's fine. Yeah, it was Ohio. Anyway. Um, go to a Browns game. Yeah, go to a Browns game. I was I was the, of the uh, 1980 version, the Brian Sipe. Uh, there you go. Brian Sipe, uh, cardiac kids years. I don't know. Buffalo had some rough years in there. He did. He did. Yeah. Um, I was a 90, I was an early 90s Buffalo boy. So we had their, the their, that was our era, the Jim Kelly yeah. era. Yeah. yeah. Bernie Kozar throwing sidearm from Cleveland. That's right. That's right. Well, we, you know, anyway, uh, you know, I thought about this. Um, and one thing I, uh, I guess, first of all, I have four teenagers now. So I know that any advice to my younger self is probably not going to be followed. So, right, right. But we'll start with that. We'll start with that understanding. Um, I guess what I would say is that, like, don't underestimate uh, your ability to make a change. I mean, you can you can actually make big change. And we talked about John Lewis at the onset here. Uh, yeah. When he was marching from Selma to Montgomery, the guy was in his early twenties. I think he was twenty-two. Um, so don't ever underestimate your ability to make change. At the same time, don't overestimate your own importance. Right. Uh, there's this kind of healthy balance that I think there is between having the hope and optimism and belief that you can make a difference and believing that you're the center of the universe um, and that everybody should kind of revolve around you. So trying to hit that sweet spot, I think, it can be challenging in this town. You know, it's particularly challenging sometimes, as you know. Yeah. But I, I think 
I think that one, and, and the other thing would be like, uh, it's kind of trite, you know, don't, don't be so afraid to make mistakes and screw things up a little bit. Um, uh, cause your path here is not a straight one. Um, and, uh, if anybody looks like, I would never guess from living in a tent in the mountains of Western Maryland, uh, that I would be sitting in the Pentagon, uh, in the secretary of defense's front office. Yeah. And if the secretary of defense at the time had, had looked at me then, they would have made the same prediction. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for uh, the the fascinating conversation. Uh, you know, I want to thank your team at the Pentagon. I know specifically the amount of work that goes into something like a podcast. And so, you know, thank you to, to Kelly Flynn and, and Daniel Parnes uh, for the work preparing this and testing the equipment and knowing that, you know, it's great to hear this is the first podcast you've done. Cause I know it's not always easy to, to communicate out of the Pentagon. So I'm honored to be part of that. <laughs> and uh, I know it took a lot of work on your team side. So thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you for your service going back in to do this. I know is a monumental task uh, for both you and your family. So thank you for, for, for doing it both for um, obviously the administration, but for the country and for all of us. So thank you. Thanks a lot, John. Appreciate it. And I should also, by the way, thank your team and thank mine, not just for putting together a podcast, but this is a team effort. This is a team sport. So yeah. um, none of us can do this on our own. Thanks, John. Absolutely. And on that note, I want to thank our producer, Colleen Young, and you can always get more episodes of Experts Only at cleancapital.com. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. Mm-hmm.